Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. In today's podcast, I'm speaking to Hamish Douglas, the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Magellan Funds Management, which manages more than 74 billion Australian dollars in global equities and also an infrastructure fund. The Magellan Global Fund, which it's most well known for, has actually returned more than 19% compound annual growth since inception. In this episode, I speak with Hamish about many of his current investments, such as Alphabet or Google, uh, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Visa and MasterCard, as well as talking about the outlook for autonomous vehicles uh, being led by Waymo, in his opinion, and a very strong opinion about Tesla and its lack of technology and competitive position. I think you'll find this to be a really fascinating episode. Please don't forget to send me uh, feedback and to subscribe and rate the podcast, you can email me directly at david.clark at codacapital.com. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, Hamish, welcome back to Inside the Rope. A pleasure to be here. Well, Hamish, you're our first uh, interviewer guest that we've had back on. We've done 22 episodes since we last did it about a year ago. So thanks for coming on. It's great. Uh, I don't know if it's a good or bad thing. We'll see. No, see it, what questions you ask it's me. It's a really good thing. One of the things I, I want to thank you most for is... Um, the returns. Um, I've I've been advising clients and investing in the fund, in the flagship, the global fund now uh, since 2010, and of course over the last 10 years, the compound annual growth rates have been a tad over 19%, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, well, thank you very much. Thank it's obviously you. a big team effort uh, here. We've got a lot of smart analysts, and uh, you know I get a very good menu to select from, and uh, you know we're we're very satisfied over uh, over. Uh, over time in terms of delivering delivering for our clients, and that's what we're here for. Excellent. Now, Hamish, your, your style, and when we spoke about last year, you are really the influences of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, and your, your, your style of investing is often compared to them. How does that make you feel, and also as an add-on to that, given the changes in the market in terms of the expected returns and growth that come from technology, how does that make you feel in that style? Yeah, I, look, I, I do think that, 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 that Charlie and Warren have been huge influences in, 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 in how we think uh, and certainly looking, you know, really looking for that five to ten year test and looking for, for extraordinary businesses that have high returns on capital and things that we feel with a lot of certainty are going to deliver um, the objectives that we've set. And you, you know what we've set, you know, in the, in the flagship fund, the Magellan Global Fund, we've set an objective of a minimum of 9% net of all fees per annum over the medium to long term. We've been exceeding that. We've had some favourable markets, but we've been exceeding that. Um, and we're influenced by their thinking to a large degree. But you're right, we've, we've got a lot of technology investments. We've got investments that they actually don't, they don't hold at all. And, and, you know, I've discussed with one of those gentlemen, I'm going to say which one, in some detail about why they haven't shifted gears. You know, back in the 70s, they shifted. They shifted gears out of out of the, out of the Ben Graham deep value, the cigar mm-hmm. butt style investing, and they moved into a business called Seize Candy in about 1974, which was kind of moving up into a more intangible related business, mm-hmm. a, a very brand oriented business, and they probably paid about double the multiple that they'd previously paid. It still wasn't a stretch multiple. I think it was about 14 times after tax earnings, but it was well above the type of stuff that Warren had been buying um, before that, and that was a seminal. Uh, uh, moment. So I've had a discussion is 
why haven't they been able to shift the next um, gear and buy businesses above that sort of 14 times after tax earnings, which seems to be a bit of a barrier, uh, given that they're wanting to deliver minimum 10% returns. And if you think about how the math works out, it's pretty easy hurdle at that, that, that levels. But why haven't they been able to invest in, say, a Google, which is the alphabet business, and mm -hmm. why don't they inherently understand uh, well, but they may have had to stretch to a multiple that may have been 18 or 19 times um, earnings. And, and I, don't, I don't fully understand. I don't, I don't believe they can't understand, nor do I think they, they have a trouble understanding the business. And I think even though there's a range of outcomes, I think they can understand, given the market share, that it's very, very probable. So we're actually doing something in a large part of our portfolio that they actually haven't done. Mm -hmm. Yet, I would have thought was inside their capability of 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 doing, and I find that so interesting. So while they're an influencing, I'd hardly regard us as copycats. Deeply influenced, but sure. we may be a step ahead or a step behind. Maybe they're right. And we shouldn't be doing this, or maybe we're a step ahead. You're the next iteration. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What well, one of them said to me? One of them said to me when I caught up once. They said, um, uh, "Hamish, I think you're fundamentally right, but maybe we're just too old to change." Okay, well, there you go. That's a, a decent segue into the definition of technology. And I notice, I think there's some changes going on where Facebook and some others might be changing that definition. And, and you know, when you think about Tesla and technology and disruption, um, it strikes me that what was, what is technology today may not be technology tomorrow. And what was technology back then, um, you know, a combustion engine car in the early 1900s, would have been revolutionary to the, the buggy whip. Um, how do you think about technology and that classification? Because some people would say you've got a very tech-heavy focus at the moment. Yeah, well, I, technology just means a new way of doing, uh, doing, doing something. And you're right, it could have been the locomotive, it could have been the steam engine, it, it could have been the mobile phone, it could have been the iPod, it could have been the Walkman, it could have been the VCR. These are all technology. We don't think of the VCR as kind of a tech play. We, we view that as something, well, they don't even exist anymore. We don't well, have VCRs. But, but a television, do we regard a television as technology? Yes. 30 years ago, televisions were technology, and it's a new way of doing a new medium of doing something. So it's just a label. It's a label. But, but in terms of technology, we're doing many different things within new things and new way to do things that are enabling new business models. So if you, if you think about our businesses in Alphabet and Facebook, they are digital advertising platforms. Um, and therefore, they're attacking old business models like newspapers. Um, they're starting to attack if you look at the new video, the digital video over the top platforms, they're going to attack the old mode of video-based advertising called television. That hasn't yet shifted, but that will shift in a very, very material way. So it's a new way of doing things that, that's attacking an existing market called advertising. Mm -hmm. So advertising isn't a new concept. We're just changing the form of where those ads are placed because they're being deeply targeted in a much more efficient way, in a, in a model that actually, as John Wanamaker said, the, the, only problem, the only problem with advertising is half the money I spend is wasted. I just don't know which half. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Google and Facebook are changing that equation for advertisers in, in the world. If you look at what we've done in payments for a very long period of time, people are going, we've just moved into technology. We've been in Visa payments, and Visa and MasterCard for nearly a decade now. 
And we made four or five times our money in Visa and, and, and MasterCard. That was a secular shift we identified a decade ago. They were demutualized and we bought them. Um, of moving out of cash and check into forms of more cashless digital payments. We're still in the first or second innings of that transition, yet we're a decade into it. Every e-commerce transaction that people make has to be made in a non-cash form. It's not cash on delivery when you shop on the internet. As more and more shopping goes in, 100% of that is going to have to go in digital payments. And the vast bulk of them outside of China are being powered by Visa and MasterCard's Rails, people now go down to lunch. I don't see many people pulling out a $20 bill anymore. Most of it's tap and go. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you're Apple Pay or Google Pay or Samsung Pay or directly on your card. Nearly every one of those payments will be Visa, MasterCard or potentially American Express as a payment in this, in this country. And the adoption rate is just it, it's slow and then it goes up this curve rapidly. That, is that a new form of technology? We've had credit cards for 30 or 40 years. Mm -hmm. But the digitalization of payments has been happening in the last 10 years, but that's still going to run for a long period of time. If you have a look, another form of technology isn't new, enterprise software. So Microsoft has had its office um, package out for decades. SAP has been around for decades empowering very large enterprises through, through their financials, through their enterprise resource planning software, infantry management software, uh, client reporting, integrating it all together in something called the SAP Business uh, Suite. They're now starting to shift that and integrate that off-premise into, into, into a cloud-based environment. This isn't new. Is that technology? There's not a lot of change going on there. There's a shift in the way it's happening, but it's deeply, deeply entrenched. And it's and, and there's something going on that I would regard is, is, is capitalism without capital. There's a great new book out. It's called Capitalism Without Capital. The world is changing that you've got these technology-enabled business models that literally can exist without having to build railways and, and, and plants and property plant and equipment. You don't have all that in this new economy. A laptop and an, and an internet connection. And an internet connection. It's incredibly powerful of what, 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 what's happening there. There are other forms of technology, uh, e-commerce. We, we have a small position in, in, in eBay, but you've got a massive businesses in Amazon and Alibaba that we don't own, so different forms of technology. Then you can go into technology stacks, uh, known as SaaS providers, where you write an application, a Salesforce, which we don't own, would be a Workday, would be um, uh, another one. You could be in semiconductors, uh, which is a manufacturer, design and manufacturer of chips that are powering all our computers and our mobile phones. We're not owning semiconductors at the moment. So there's so many different forms. This label of just technology mm -hmm. is such a broad thing. We're, do, we're doing things in industries that we think are platforms uh, where the advantages and the duration of the market share they can take is, is, is very long. And because they're competing almost without capital, much more with network effects, the returns on capital are almost infinite in these business models. We haven't seen this before in capitalism. You've got almost infinite returns on capital in growing businesses with very large addressable um, uh, markets. And we think we're in the early innings of what can happen here, but we're not participating here. We're not only Tesla. Mm -hmm. Te Tesla is not a technology company. It may, they may be developing an electric car, but it's a car manufacturer. There's nothing modern about what Tesla is doing. They're going to have to solve the old capital intensity 
and efficiencies in manufacturing a car, all they're doing is going from an internal combustion engine into a battery powered thing and do they have any competitive advantage in doing that as opposed to Mercedes-Benz or, or Ford or anyone else doing that, particularly in the large scale manufacturing. So some people putting labels on things that are technology that aren't technology at all in, 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 in our view. So when we spoke, uh, as I said, nearly 12 months ago, you were jury out on Tesla. And it's quite interesting in that many of the people I see and respect and listen to, I've got some on the camp that are saying, well, there is technology in there in terms of chipset and all the data they're collecting from the fleet that they've got. Um, and that they might, in terms of mobility or solution, be sneaky in front of Waymo, um, so, saying don't underestimate and don't write it off. This could be worth significantly more than it is at the moment. And I've got others who are you know, well-respected investors um, who are almost like that episode of The Simpsons, if you've ever seen it with the kids, where the fellow sells the monorail and goes from town to town and says, you know, Shelbyville's got one, you need one, Springville, that, you know, there's almost a charlatan in terms of you should be short this stock. Your view on Tesla? Well, I don't know whether it's a short or not. There's no doubt they're collecting data from their sensors on the cars, but the evidence so far in terms of their, in terms of their autonomous uh, driving technology is kind of a joke. You know, Waymo is so far out in front of the field. The second in, in is, is Cruise, it's owned by General Motors. Yeah. Waymo, I think, is up at 6,000 miles per disengagement in, in California. Mm -hmm. that, that means is how many miles is the car going before it has an actual disengagement of needing the safety driver to, to, to intervene because some, it's seen something it hasn't seen before. They have, Waymo has a facility on an old Air Force base out of San Francisco where they're doing, where they've built cities there and got cars going around and then they built a program called CarCraft that's like Minecraft that, that, that drives cars in simulation. They've had cars on the road in Phoenix, Arizona where they've had 400 people on the Waymo app calling up cars. They've, at the end of this year, they're going to launch into Phoenix, Arizona, a fully autonomous fleet available to anyone in, in Arizona, fully autonomous, and they've already ordered 80,000 cars from Jaguar and Chrysler that will be able to do about 8 million trips per day in fully autonomous vehicles. The disengagement rate of Tesla is less than one mile at the moment. So to put Tesla even in the same thing is a joke. Tesla are not even in the game of what's going on, and the thing what's going to happen is the the, the winners are going to accrue to very, very few players because the technology, the software, or people like Microsoft, it's an operating system, mm -hmm. and people will go to where the safety stats are. And once you get a lead and start proving it on the public roads, on scale, you keep getting better and better every single mile that you, you drive. Uh, Google has driven more on public roads, I believe, than every other player combined. Okay. So just because they're driving Teslas around with sensors picking stuff up, that's not autonomous driving. They're just picking up data. The problem is they don't actually have the systems so, uh, truly that, that have learned. So te Tesla should work out how to manufacture a car before they actually think they're going to have some autonomous uh, fleet going on. I, I haven't spent a lot of time. I, 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 have, I have zero interest in investing in, 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 in Tesla. I view it as a very speculative, low-quality investment, and I'll leave it to the speculators uh, to, 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 to work it out.
where on the other hand, it sounds like you have a very high conviction in alphabet. We, we have our highest conviction. It's our largest position in, 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 in alphabet. And alphabet's a really interesting case study. It's a bit like the case study we put out in Apple um, a year or so uh, ago where we had a very high conviction position in Apple where we thought the market just didn't get what was what was going on. Since we put that out, the share price has doubled and we're still holding a, 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 large, a large position, largely because we didn't think the model and the subscription business were understood by the market. It was mm -hmm. starting to become more evident to the market. It's starting to become more evident to the market. Alphabet's in a similar uh, position. So if you look at Alphabet, its core advertising business is one of the greatest businesses in the world. It's growing its revenues above 20% a year which is extraordinary given it's 130 billion US dollars of revenue sitting inside their advertising um, uh, business there. Is that mature and is the growth about to fall off the cliff? We think there are two massive markets in their advertising business that they haven't yet touched the sides of. One is what we would call local-based advertising. So they're putting together all their services. They own Android, uh, which is obviously their phone system. They own Google Search. They own maps. So what they're doing is connecting all this together that they, whenever you have one of those services on your phone, it doesn't matter if it's an Android or an Apple phone, they know where you are. Every time they do a search in your whole life, unless somehow you've turned it off, they've got the record of everything you've searched for. Every time you've looked on their maps, they know where you've looked, what you've done. Every YouTube video you've watched, they know. Most websites you've visited from their thing, they know which websites you've visited. So they know a huge amount about you. So now they're doing geolocation with their maps and, and because, of, because they track you on the phone of actually connecting either on maps, suggesting things to you as you're using maps, or when you're searching, doing a very local search for you. It's almost like the old sort of yellow pages on steroids that they're putting together here. And that is a holy grail for advertisers, connecting people who are moving around with the environment they're in in a hyper-local way, knowing everything about the businesses that are around you and services that you may want or attractions you may want or whatever may be um, uh, uh, going on. The other part of the advertising pie that is enormous in scale relative to their current size is the television business. So still there has been nearly no erosion from the television advertising business in the world with all the advent of what's happened. The media, the print media has been decimated and most of it's gone to Google and Facebook. The vast majority has gone to Google, but also Facebook's very, been a very large, outside of China, a very large beneficiary. It's extraordinary how much of that pot's ended up with two companies. Uh, we now have over 200 billion US dollars worth of revenue sitting in advertising ex-China. Um, we would say in the next five to ten years, that revenue will largely completely shift from the current incumbents to new forms of video-based entertainment. Mm -hmm. Google owns YouTube. YouTube, currently Google, I, I believe YouTube has more hours watched per day in the United States of America than is watched on the whole of broadcast television in the United States of America. It's, it's extraordinary. The staggering. It's staggering, the, the viewership, and ultimately how the model works, the advertisers, because when you're on that, they know so much about you, so every person on YouTube can get a different ad. Broadcast television, it's linear, they can't do that. Everyone's watching the same, so a lot of the ads they're targeting is completely wasted, and you're having to pay an enormous amount of um, um, uh, money there. So, you know, that's 200 billion. If they will get a decent share, if they get 40% of that, that's 80 billion. 80 billion compared to their current business of 130 billion, and both of them will grow in line with, 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 with GDP. Mm -hmm. So that business, we think, is still in the early innings. It's advertising business. 
And then outside of advertising, I think there are two very large businesses that are worth enormous amounts of money today that are losing money. One is called the Google Cloud Platform. So this is the hyperscale use of their data centers for enterprises to effectively move their computing power to an infrastructure provided. And there are three big players outside of China. The largest today is Amazon Web Services. Amazon Web Services is probably worth three or four hundred billion dollars in the in the in the Amazon um, market cap today. Mm -hmm. Then you've got Azure at Microsoft, mm -hmm. and you've got Google Cloud, and um, uh, platform within within Alphabet. Um, the total market's worried about $60 billion. The addressable market is probably six to $700 billion US dollars. These companies will practically take it all. I think it is very foreseeable in the next five to 10 years that that business is gonna be worth at least half the current market cap of, of Google. And then you've got Waymo, which we just spoke about, the driverless car business. They're just about to launch a robo-taxi service, which is the first thing. They're going to roll them out everywhere. It's going to take a while to get all the approvals and things, but they're so far in front of the others, it's a network effect. Mm -hmm. Whoever has all the cars and all the things just, just will, gather, will gather the market. Then they will license the software to other car manufacturers for personal cars. Then they'll go into logistics and deliveries. They've been very explicit what they want to do in the Waymo. Um, business model. We think Waymo and, and 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 the Google Cloud platform are worth today at least $100 billion if they were separate companies, at least. Uh, and they'll be worth far more in the in, in the future as the businesses develop. Google is worth $900 billion market cap today. Take off the $100 billion of cash they have, take off the value of these other two major businesses, and they've got other businesses in there that are much smaller that we're, we're, we're ignoring. Mm -hmm. 100 billion, let's say that's a conservative estimate, $700 billion for an advertising business. You're buying that advertising business above 20% a year at probably 18 times this year's earnings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, is, that is crazy um, still. And we've made a lot of money already on Alphabet. It's because people can't peel the onion and actually think about the size of the addressable markets. They don't have the duration to think about how long this will go for, and then sizing the options they have around some of these other businesses um, they're, they're developing. I guess it's hard to do. Um, there's lots of bits. We've got a whole global model on cloud infrastructure. So we, we model that whole thing and what the market developed and what the market sensitivities on the market shares and all that. So we're kind of building that anyway. So we've got a, a good feel on that, on, on, on that side of the business, what the possible potential um, is there. So you've asked, do we have conviction in, in, in Alphabet? If I had to own one company for the next decade and all the markets were switched off and I couldn't do anything about it, I would probably be most comfortable with putting my money in Alphabet today because I think the odds are so strongly in their favour over this next decade that they're going to be worth materially more in a decade than they are today. It's one of these incredibly capital-like businesses um, uh, as well by the nature of what they do, despite all the investment they have to make in their data centres. Um, here it's an intellectual capital business, and the intellectual capital, I think it's the most advantaged company on the planet today. And this is before we get a massive long-term venture capital investment that's happening in Google around artificial intelligence, I mean AGI, artificial general intelligence, which is the holy grail in quantum computing. Mm -hmm. And I really think there are only two players in the race um, in that long term, it happens to be China and Google um, in that in that race. If whoever pulls it off first will probably have the 
In either one of those areas will probably be the largest commercial discovery in human history. Um, and I can guarantee you're paying zero for that within Google. It's just completely free. But that's a much longer term option. Let's circle back to that because it's a key point. Um, I'm very interested in that and the explanation you provide of that. But how do you think about the legislative risk? We've seen Facebook cop a 20% hit to share price with some legislative issues and having to deal with governments and regulation. How do you think about that with regard to Alphabet and Facebook and other companies similar that, that are starting to get such huge size because of this winner-take-all nature of those markets and the network effect that regulators around the world are getting very nervous? Yeah, I, I think you've hit the, the nail on the head of where the risk is. What's going to stop a Google or a Facebook? Uh, Google's more advantaged than a Facebook is, but the regulatory issues are actually probably more pronounced in a Facebook side of things. So if you, if you look at what's going on in Facebook, there's two principal regulatory issues they're, they're, they're dealing with. One issue is about privacy, and that's what Cambridge Analytica was all about when mm -hmm. they broke that these 87 million people potentially had their Facebook profiles scraped and given to third, uh, third parties. How did that happen? Was it permissible? It was actually permissible under the consent degree with the FTC, which was an interesting thing that the regulators had actually permitted exactly that event to occur. But, but now it's come, it's become a big issue about what the privacy settings um, uh, uh, should be. And we've seen out of Europe, effectively, the GDPR, which is a general data protection regulation that they've, they've got enacted. Well, it was enacted a while ago, became effect in, in May. We think that's the model for sort of personal data, opt-in, opt-out, security, forget-me rules, all that type of stuff. And that will become the template around the world. So we had to really think about whether that's going to have a big long-term impact. On any big technology company, everyone's going to have to comply with that. And we don't think it's going to have a big impact on margins at the at, 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 at the thing, but it affects everybody equally. So you could get slightly less targeting available to you because you may have slightly less data um, uh, there. But in the end, it is still the best targeting because every, it affects everybody equally um, there. So the, 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 the regulatory issue in Facebook, the bigger one, is what I call weaponising the platform, the fake news issue. So what happened in the 2016 election? And really what's the big debate at the moment politically about these platforms either being used by foreign actors to spread misinformation, or if you take the other side of this, is, is censoring and not spreading all information, which is where President Trump is at the moment, that are they getting enough prominence to their information opposed to others in, in any way they writing algorithms to, to censor, and Google's caught up a little bit in that. They're, they're not caught up in the fake news, they're much more caught up in do their search results prioritise something over, over, uh, over uh, the, the, the others. This is a much more complex issue than the data privacy um, uh, issues. Ultimately, the, the nuclear risk around, uh, around these is making these platforms publishers and accountable for anything that goes on the platform confirming that it's real. Mm -hmm. For a Facebook, that is impossible because it's a social platform with two billion plus users who are posting their own things. How do you know the post is an opinion of the individual that you may fundamentally disagree with thinking it's ridiculous or a post from a fake actor who's stolen or created an identity that is truly fake information that's been done to manipulate opinion. So how do you distinguish between, between that? If you make them fully accountable and become publishers where they're not actually the editors of the information, 
No one could post anything on Facebook that hadn't been pre-checked in any way. Um, therefore, the whole of Facebook would fall apart. We think the risk of that is incredibly low that that would, that, that would happen because at the end of the day, Facebook, does, one, they're investing enormous amounts of money to reduce the risk of the 2016 election. They will never get perfect, but I think the chances and the security agencies are actually very happy and they're taking it very seriously what Facebook um, uh, are, are, are doing here. And Facebook actually has an enormous amount of social utility. So the example I would give people is you have a sick child who has a rare disease. On Facebook, you can, you, can, you can search, find a group. You'll probably have 2,000 families around the world with a child with the same disease who comes together and is sharing information. That is incredibly valuable for free social utility. It's very, very valuable. It's connecting people around the world. So what's missing in this debate is the social utility all the upside, all of the all the upside that's been done. And I think Facebook is going to do... Our, our, our assumption is that Facebook, and we're doing a lot of work on this topic, mm -hmm. are doing... At, and this is one reason why their share prices come down, because they're spending so much money on both fact-checkers and AI um, to reduce the risk of this sort of weaponising their platform used for bad purposes mm -hmm. um, here. They were slow to react and they deserve for being beaten up a bit about, uh, about that. But I think they've got, the, uh, they, they've got the message. But are we being blasé about the risk on, on a regulatory side on either of these two? This is where the biggest regulatory risk is around these two businesses. It's not really at Apple. Apple doesn't. It's on an advertising business. It's not a social network. Uh, if anything, the regulators don't like them because they encrypt the data. Yeah, 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 they can't they can't get in. There's no back door into their, their data. So it's actually a different issue that yeah. they they want to breach the privacy. They they they, yeah, they, they can't. Like, so one day the regulators going, everyone should have privacy and on the other side and they're going, but us, we'd like to yeah, get in. Exactly. So so now, you know Can I circle back quickly now? You spoke about a free carry in Google or Alphabet to quantum computing. And I've listened to a couple of things and read some material and it kind of makes my head spin around and I can't articulate or describe the opportunity in quantum computing, but I'd love to hear you. Yeah, well, I, I think what we're doing in terms of being able to solve very, very complex optimization um, problems, we don't actually have the computational power. Even if we really wanted to know how, say, bacteria worked, mm -hmm. um, uh, once bacteria gets any complexity, to really understand its molecular structure, uh, the, the understanding of that is beyond modern computing power. You would say that, that, that in order to get there through Moore's law, a computing power keeps going up, but we're, we're, we're reaching the limits of physics of where, where that where that can end. So the thing about quantum computing is, is, is it's a completely different state. It's using quantum mechanics where effectively an atom can be in two states at the same time. And once you start adding multiple what's known as qubits, uh, the, it's an exponential power. The more you add, the computational power goes up exponentially because it's on and off at exactly the same time. Um, and therefore, its ability theoretically to solve incredibly complex things in running computational calculations mm -hmm. in many order of magnitudes faster than can be run on any form of the most powerful supercomputer today, which means that we will be able to solve problems that are absolutely unsolvable today. So, so that 
artificial intelligence and robotics and all of these things have hugely more, much more power. Yeah. We're, we're not going to have quantum, quantum computers is incredibly difficult in the technology in order to get these um, to, to, have a, to, to have an atom that can be in two states at once, yep. you have to be near sub-zero, uh, absolute zero temperatures, or maybe you have to be using some form of gravitational forces. Mm -hmm. Then you're not going to have a quantum computer in your phone, but you may have to access a quantum computer via the cloud, and then they sit in, they, they sit in data centres. I think the people who solve this will ultimately be able to solve problems uh, via writing software, uh, quantum software, problems that are unsolvable today and solve problems. Uh, they could be climate problems, they could be medical problems, they could be new molecular structures that mm -hmm. haven't been thought of um, um, uh, before. They could be understanding the DNA um, uh, by, running, by running algorithms. So the, 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 and Moore's law is, is, is coming to an end, but the thing is the change to quantum computing means Moore's law in processing power will start accelerating, in my view, at orders of magnitude from where we've been at the moment. So it's a breakout in computational power. And a breakout in computational power opens up all sorts of possibilities we haven't thought of. And therefore, solving that problem is so valuable. Why is China investing so much money in its quantum computing? Well, as soon as you've got a quantum computer and you program it, you will be able to solve any cryptography problem, as in you'll be able to so break Bitcoin's it. broken. Oh, instantly broken. Instantly. At the moment, there's no computer power that can break crypto because it's just purely a math problem that, that we don't have enough power to solve that. But when you can effectively simultaneously run every possible combination almost mm -hmm. instantaneously, you can solve any, any form of cryptography we thought of, which means if a country had it, there are no state secrets. There is no information you could send being encrypted that wouldn't be instantaneously broken if you had the right software and you had a quantum computer. Um, so how far do you think we are away from the first quantum computers? Oh, we've got, we, 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 we got elementary forms of quantum, quantum computers that have been run by IBM, uh, Microsoft has a massive program, Google has a massive um, uh, program. Google, Google, Google are very close to, they're, they're probably out in front in, in, from what I read. At the moment, China's running massive quantum computers were at the University of New South Wales running different forms of quantum computing that, that's fairly advanced. Are we, we're still in very early, uh, early days. Okay. I, I can't make an estimate, but maybe we're 10 years away from a, a quantum computer. It could be longer. It could be shorter. I, I don't know. But the, the breakout possibilities, but then it's in writing the software. Because mm -hmm. at the moment, they're incredibly unstable. They could be solving very, very specific problems. There's no software that's a whole software that would have to be written that would actually operate in um, in a quantum mechanics um, uh, uh, world. Okay. Uh, Hamish, at the moment in the portfolio, I think you're carrying around 18% in cash. Why? Yeah, we're cautious at the moment uh, is, 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 is the bottom line. We're very late cycle in these, is these markets. I don't think we're making a statement of the obvious. Mm -hmm. We've had a nine-year expansion in, in markets. A lot of assets are near their all-time record Pricing. We're in a part of the cycle that the Federal Reserve is starting to increase interest rates. Mm -hmm. There's great uncertainty about what the what the impact will be of U.S. fiscal expansion. So the tax cuts and the stimulus, if that was to to trigger wages inflation in the next 12 months, which has been absent in this economic recovery, 
it could force the Fed to have to put on the brakes faster than they're anticipating. In an asset price that's priced to perfection and tightening monetary policy faster than the market's expecting, it is very foreseeable in that environment we could have a meaningful market correction. Mm-hmm. Um, will it happen? Won't it happen? We don't know. We don't know, but we think the risks of it happening at the moment are elevated uh, and they're material. I don't think they're more than 50%, but they're material. And because they're, it's a very material risk and it's easily foreseeable that that could happen in the economic backdrop that we, we have and with the asset pricing we have, we've decided it, it's just time to be cautious and run cash. And actually, we're running what we would call recession-prone investments at a very low part of our portfolio. Recession-prone investments, the typical ones that are benefited by the economic cycle, we would regard as approximately maybe 10% of our portfolio. So we're not only running cash, we're running cyclical investments, economic cyclical investments at a much lower part of our, um, of our, of our portfolio. Uh, so we're not saying there will be a big market correction. We're just saying is we can clearly see the circumstances in which it would happen. And we think the, the risks are elevated at the moment. People should really watch uh, US wages information. The problem is if we print a number above three, I suspect markets will have 10% in the first month, the Fed will probably go on pause. If we see it for the second month, hold on to your chairs. For, I, I'm not talking about a 50% down, but maybe a 20 to 30% down in those circumstances. Will it happen? All history would tell you the probabilities of happening are very high because you always get wages growth in the end. We're in a very tight labour market. We haven't happened. The bargain, we haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen it. Well, we, we had the canary in the coal mine on the 2nd of February this year when they put out the January, January wages numbers, which came at 2.9, and then in the first two weeks of February, we sold off by 10% around the world. Then we got the numbers for February and early March and went back to about 2.6, and the market breathed a sigh of relief. There was no wages inflation. It was just a temporary blip. Um, so we've, we've had a warning and close. that the markets are wound up, and if we get it, Expect there to be some unwinding here. So it's not like we're just making this stuff up. Um, um, will it happen or won't it happen? We're, it is the strongest consumer environment in the United States right at the moment that we've seen in over a decade. And they're adding stimulus, stimulus. to the economy. And unemployment's below 4%. Is there any chance that we'll get wages growth eventually hitting an inflection point here? Of course there's a chance of it. You can debate what probability there is mm-hmm. here and what the secular forces are against that. Um, but to bet it won't happen, I think, would be a very brave thing to do at the moment. Hamish, to finish off and change gears, um, who are some of the other managers and strategies in the wealth management space that you really admire? Um, I, I must admit I don't spend a lot of time thinking uh, about that. We, we really row our own base. Mm-hmm. Vote. I, I really think about the type of influencers who I think are great thinkers. They're not kind of the current fund managers. If you walked around this office and you looked at the meeting rooms and what we've named, and of course, we're sitting in the, we're sitting in the Munger room here mm-hmm. uh, where, where we're doing this, this interview. Our boardroom's called the Buffett Room. There's probably no surprise to people there. But it's interesting, the room next to my at my desk downstairs is called the Bogle Room. Mm-hmm. I think Jack Bogle had a Vanguard. Vanguard. He, yep. he invented index investing. Mm-hmm. Very odd thing for, a, for an active fund manager to have outside his, his, the office next to him where he has most of his meetings called the Bogle Room. I think Jack did an amazing job for society of effectively commoditizing the cost of the index of the 
of, of, of the market and frankly took out of a lot of imposters out of the, uh, out of the, uh, out of the game of active funds management. I think that's been a great um, benefit to, to, to society. We've got the Templeton Room. We've got the Klarman Room with Seth Klarman. Um, he's much deeper value. He wrote Margin of Safety. Ben Graham, of course, was, wrote Security Analysis, Phil Fisher. So there's a great lot of influences who I think have contributed greatly to thinking about investing in psychology investing. But do I spend a lot of time about current managers? I can be honest with you, I never look at a portfolio of another fund manager. I can't think of the last time I've looked at a stock that's been owned by another fund manager. I think it's just confusing. You need to do your own work. Part of being an investor is about to think independently. And if you're trying to watch what other people are doing, I think you're just corrupting your thought process. You should work out your own investment ideas and you don't need you don't need to look for, if you're investing in something, to actually find another investor that you admire. Oh, they own it as well, therefore I'm doing a good job. Mm-hmm. You, could get, you could get terrible self-confidence by looking for that information um, there. You know, I got no comfort in the fact that Warren Buffett bought Apple, Apple. Um, at the end of the day. It was a happenstance that that... that um, um, uh, that, that, uh, that, that, that happened. It, it didn't mean we were right or wrong because he bought it. At the end of the day, only what matters is what happens to Apple's earnings over time. Um, you know, it will only work out whether your facts and reasonings are right, not whether other people agree with you. Hamish, I think that's a wonderful place to end it. Thank you very much for joining us and thanks for your time. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.